Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters' 90-minute bottomless brunch can be added to the purchase of any entree for an additional $20. Bottomless options include mimosas, Bloody Marys, Trulies, and Bud Lights. Walk on over to Walters tonight for a D.C. United pregame party. Register at waltersdc.com to receive one free old-time lager. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Sanchez into the wide of the pitch. Hit in the air to left field toward the corner. Thomas going back, way back toward the bullpen fence. And it is in the bullpen. Gone a home run for Carson Kelly. RBI number 16. It's now Arizona 2 and Washington nothing. The pitch. Slicing line drive to left deep. Thomas gets turned around, reaches out, lunges, can't get it. The ball bounces off the fence, stays in play. So two runs are going to score. Around from second, Perdomo, and scoring from first is Rojas. And the Diamondbacks have broken it wide open. It's 7-1. to one. And welcome to Nats Chat for Sunday, July 24th, 2022, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Chase Field in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. It was scorchingly hot in the Washington, D.C. area on Saturday. It was expected to again be scorchingly hot in the D.C. area on Sunday. The Nationals, though, are ice cold, uh, even though they are in Arizona in late July. Oh, the irony of it all. Uh, The Nats on Saturday night lost again 7-2 the final at the Arizona Diamondbacks in Game 2 of a three-game series. So the Nats, over the first two games of this series, have been outscored 17-3. This in a series at a Diamondbacks team that is last in the National League West. The Nats, of course, are last in all of MLB. The Nats now are a major league worst, 31-65, and 65, with a major league worst run differential of minus 163. We on Saturday had more in the Juan Soto trade saga. We'll get to that shortly. We on Saturday night did have a bit of an incident involving Victor Robles and Madison Bumgarner. We'll be getting into that. But Mark, we also on Saturday night had a 17th Nats loss in 19 games. The Nats still have two wins in this month of July. And for those listening who have not yet looked at a calendar, at least have not looked at a calendar lately, July is going to be over soon. And, Al, it's going to take something pretty dramatic for them to avoid having this be the worst month in team history. So the worst month, winning percentage-wise, in Nationals history was July also of 2008. 
They went five and 19. That was a 208 winning percentage. Well, as you just pointed out, they've only won two games so far this month. They have to win four of the final seven in order to avoid finishing worse than a 208 winning percentage for the month. And let's remember that six of those seven games are against the Dodgers and the Cardinals. So if they were going to have a chance, they had to do it this weekend against Arizona. And clearly they haven't done that yet. So in all likelihood, this is going to end up as the worst month in Nationals history. And isn't that something to consider when you think about last July, what a disaster it was, when you think about those 2008, 2009 teams? No, this one, July of 2022, is probably going to end up as the worst month in Nationals history. Yeah, it really is something, especially off what you just said, the July of last year and like how everything fell apart in July of last year. Now, things long ago fell apart for this season's Nats team, but man, things have been particularly bad in this month of July this year for whatever reason. And as we highlighted on the last installment of the podcast, this is still with the Nats having the likes of Juan Soto and Josh Bell. What happens if slash when both of those guys are gone after the MLB trade deadline on August 2nd? Exactly how bad might things get? And I tell you, Mark, it's not just that the Nats have lost these first two games, that they have been outscored 17-3 at a Diamondbacks team that just isn't that good. I mean, if this was happening at the Dodgers, maybe okay. You could kind of sort of see that. But Arizona, to get smashed by the Diamondbacks over these first two games like this? Uh, boy, it just you're coming out of the All-Star break. You want to maybe get off to a halfway decent start as you're, you know, playing your final 65 or so games of the season. And instead, it's like, wham, you know, you get struck like right across the face uh, with a blow like this, outscored 17-3 over these first two games. And they're doing nothing offensively. And, you know, in this game, you want to know what it would look like without Soto and Bell? Well, here's your example. It would look like Saturday night's game did because Soto was 0 for 4 with three strikeouts and Bell was 0 for 4 himself. The only guy who produced for them at the plate was Victor Robles, who had quite an eventful night in a lot of ways, as we'll get to. But they are not hitting. And, you know, even when Soto and Bell hit, they're not scoring runs. When they don't hit, there's nothing going on in this lineup. Doesn't matter who they're facing. And... I want to say for the month, I need to look this up now, but they've only even held a lead for a handful of innings over the entire month. Every game, they trail early and they don't come back. And it's just been a, a really demoralizing thing to watch that it's one thing if, okay, hey, they're losing every game by one run and maybe the bullpen blows. They played a really good game, but the bullpen gave it up late. Like that's not happening. They're down 2 nothing, 3 nothing, 4 nothing. Maybe they get a little bit something going at the plate, but it's way too little, too late. In this case, the game was still kind of within reach, and then Andres Machado made a mess of it in the sixth inning. There, These are just not compelling baseball games for the most part. It's not like you can say, well, they're playing well, but they're losing. It's like, no, they're not doing anything well right now. No, they're not. And as we've said with the offense, it may not be the Nats' biggest problem this season, although at this point, I think you couldn't make that case. But I think it has been the biggest disappointment this season, that the offense has been this bad. We thought it might at least be fun to watch Soto and Bell and Cruz and, you know, maybe a few other guys hit and make things interesting. And maybe you lose a bunch of 8-7-9-8 type games. You have not had that this season. You've had more like 9-1 games as opposed to 9-8 games for the Nats in terms of losses this year. You mentioned Victor Robles, and he did make things interesting on Saturday night uh, in a variety of ways. So Victor Robles on Saturday night as your Nats starting center fielder and number nine batter, two for three with a solo home run, a bunt single, and a stolen base. 
Now the pitch swung on and hit in the air to deep left. This is way back. Going, going, and gone. Goodbye. A home run for Victor Robles. You know, we thought deep into the game that the bunt single and the stolen base were going to end up being the most interesting aspect of Victor Robles' Saturday night. So in what was a Nats one-run third, Victor Robles had a leadoff first pitch bunt single and a stolen base. And it was almost comical watching all of these things happen because you could argue that neither thing should have happened. The bunt single was a bunt pop-up single. But the Diamondback starting pitcher, Madison Bumgarner, was slow to get to the pop-up, and uh, the pop-up landed, and Robles wound up on first base with a hit. And then the stolen base came despite Bumgarner having Robles picked off. But Robles showed off the wheels and actually beat the throw from Diamondbacks first baseman Christian Walker to second base. So, okay, kind of funny to see these things happen. Not exactly a work of art from Robles, but he was uh, able to get on first, then steal second, then found his way to third, and then ended up scoring a run. Then came the Nats scoring their other run in the game. One run eighth inning, Victor Robles, a one-out solo homer to left field of Bumgarner. Uh, the homer cut the Nats deficit to 7-2. The homer was actually a fairly impressive homer, 413 feet per stat cast. But Victor Robles, uh, as he has done in the past, you know, he's a bit of a showman. He's got some flair to him, and he admired the home run. <laughs> and Madison Bumgarner, who's pretty old school, was not a fan of that. Said Bumgarner after the game, quote, he's a clown. Golly, no shame, no shame. Like it's 7-1, you hit your third homer of the year and you act like Barry Bonds <laughs> breaking the record. Clean it up. I don't care about giving up the run. Hell, we won 7-2, 8-2, whatever it was. It's frustrating. I'm the old grumpy guy. I know, but that type of stuff, it didn't used to happen. That's ridiculous, end quote. Uh, I know that Robles responded to Bumgarner being upset after the game. What'd you think about how Robles treated hitting the home run? And what'd you think about what was said about how Robles treated hitting the home run? So watching it live, and I've seen some replays, and unfortunately there is no like good camera shot that just held on Robles through the whole thing, maybe because there was nothing worth holding the camera on Robles for. I saw a guy who was excited to hit a home run off of maybe future Hall of Famer. And yeah, it came near the end of a blowout, but it didn't strike me. And again, I'll, I'll reserve full judgment until I get a chance to actually see the entirety of it again on tape. But what I saw didn't seem like anything out of the ordinary, either for Robles or for Major League Baseball in 2022. And Bumgarner can say, well, they, this didn't used to be this way. Well, no, it didn't used to be this way 30 years ago. But if you've been watching Major League Baseball for the last 10 years, this is entirely commonplace now. We know Bumgarner has a history of this. I think he, he and Yasiel Puig, when he was with the Dodgers, had an outstanding feud for many, many years. There's all kinds of social elements to it as well, if you want to get into that part of it. But it seemed to me that Madison Bumgarner had no reason to make anything of this. And I give Victor credit, you know, when he came in and talked to us afterwards, he wasn't even aware of the issue. It's not like Bumgarner said anything to him on the field as it was happening. And so when Victor heard about it, he kind of laughed it off a little bit. And he spoke complimentary of Bumgarner as a pitcher. He knows he's one of the best. Victor was excited to hit a home run off him. And his quote was, uh, or at least part of the quote was, 
when he's pitching well and he's able to celebrate and do whatever he like whatever he likes to do, it seems like he calls everybody a clown that actually has a big hit or home run against him. If he doesn't want anyone hitting a home run against him or having any issues with that, then just strike people out or make better pitches to where he doesn't have to worry about that. That's all Victor through the interpreter, Octavio Martinez, who was there with him. But I thought Victor handled it very well. You can say, hey, it's uh, a blowout game, Vic. Just put your head down and run the bases, and that's fine. But I did not see anything out of the ordinary, certainly by today's standards. And I think Maz and Bumgarner has made a whole career out of making a big deal out of these things. You know what, Bum? You're a great pitcher. You may go to the Hall of Fame. You've had some of the most iconic moments in modern baseball history. Don't ruin it with this kind of old school take that just doesn't work in 2022. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think it's notable that Bumgarner kind of poked fun at himself by calling himself the old grumpy guy. It's almost like as Bumgarner was saying these things, he kind of recognized how he was sounding and how he was coming off. And he was correct in uh, assuming that he was sounding and coming off in that way, because that's exactly how he came off and sounded. All of this stuff, which has been a thing for years now of like guys over celebrating home runs, even in blowout losses, like who cares? Let people have fun. Like, why does baseball have to be so anti-people having fun? And, you know, especially for a guy like Victor Robles, he's from the Dominican Republic. In the DR, baseball is played this way. Baseball is played with a flair, and it's not played that way to be unsportsmanlike. It's not played that way because all Dominican players are jerks. It's played that way because that's how the game is played. If you ever watch the DR teams in these World Baseball Classics, all those guys play like this and they celebrate and they have fun and they laugh and they clap. And what's wrong with that? You know, baseball doesn't have to be like undergoing a root canal. It can be fun. You can smile. You know, now I don't know when's the last time Bumgarner actually smiled. I think it was like in the mid 90s. Okay, but that's him. And that's fine that that's him. That's work for him. But not everyone has to be like you. It reminds me, Mark, of the Braves teams of like five, six, seven years ago, you know, Brian McCann et al. acting like the policeman of MLB and the policeman of etiquette in MLB. And you were just like, pipe down, you know, be quiet. Nobody needs to hear from you on these things. I agree. Immediately, that's who I thought of. They had an incident with the Nats. I don't even remember exactly who it was that they took issue with. But yeah, McCann and that group were big on it. And my feeling at the time, and it remains the same, is I can't stand in sports when you have one guy or one team trying to tell the other team the proper way to win or the proper way to lose or the proper way to celebrate. It's not their job to do that. Let their own team police it. I didn't see anything in the Nationals clubhouse afterwards that suggested anybody in there had any problem with what Victor Robles did. And I think it's a really tired debate in 2022. Bumgarner is better than that. He knows better. He doesn't need to do this anymore. And like you pointed out, and I, I think there's something to this, it seems like the guys that he has had issues with in the past and in other cases where there are complaints about this, it is very often Latino players who are being singled out and called out for their excessive celebration. I'm putting that in quote marks here. As you said, that is a style of play that they all grow up with. And I think as long as you are not doing something that is directly disrespectful to the other team, and as long as it's genuine in the moment you felt great about what you just did, nobody should have any problem with it. No. Random thought, by the way, to anyone listening who watches the FX show Snowfall, Madison Bumgarner looks exactly like Reed Thompson. 
Okay, there may be like five people listening who get that. Snowfall is an excellent show, by the way, for looking for good TV shows to watch. But Bunk Garner looks exactly like this guy Reed Thompson on Snowfall. Yeah, it is a tired debate, and it's been it's happened way too often in recent years. This kind of thing popping up, and it just it feels like it's played out at this point. It's funny too because with everything going on with the ads right now. The last thing that they need to be worried about is Victor Robles celebrating home runs. He only hits like four every year anyway. So like, what, what is, you know, what do people need to be worried about that? What about though, what happened with Robles in that third inning, the bunt pop-up single and the stolen base that wasn't supposed to be? I feel like that was such a, like a quintessential Victor Robles inning, multiple blunders. There goes the runner and a pickoff throw to first. Walker throws to second, the tag by Marte. Safe is the call. Marte has pointed the dugout saying to challenge it. To his credit, the blunders ended up working out, but you're like, boy, Victor, what happened in those two moments? It was the full Victor Robles experience in one inning. Everything, the good and the bad, he was this close to having made some really bad mistakes on the bunt, on the pickoff attempt that he probably should have been caught. Instead, he ends up there. He ends up going to third on a wild pitch. And then did you notice he was dancing so far off third base that Bumgarner tried to pick him off. Bumgarner, a left-hander who cannot see third base behind him, tries to pick him off third. So it does make me wonder, was there a little bit of uh, growing frustration throughout this game from Bumgarner towards Robles because of how that at bat went? And then we haven't even gotten to Robles in the field in the fourth inning, making a diving attempt at a sinking line drive. Can't quite get it. He gets up, retrieves the ball, gets it in, and then goes down in a heap. And you think he's seriously injured. And then... I don't know, 10 seconds later, he's up on his feet, waving off the trainer, has to run to make a catch later in the inning and was perfectly fine. I guess he just had the wind knocked out of him. But Victor Robles equals drama. (laughs) Sometimes good, sometimes bad, but it's never not interesting when it's Victor Robles. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The pitch, swing and a miss, struck him out with a changeup. And Soto fans for the third time of the game and is home for four. Barring anything miraculous, his career high on base game streak will come to an end. And first time this season, striking out three times in a game. Well, it's a good thing we had Victor Robles on Saturday night because there wasn't much else to sink your teeth into uh, for the Nats in this game. Again, 7-2 was the final at the Diamondbacks. Another just woeful offensive performance by the Nats. They scored just two runs. They totaled just four hits. Zero walks worked by the Nats over the entirety of this game. 
The Nats struck out 11 times, 0 for 3 with runners in scoring position. The Nats over the first two games of this series have totaled a mere four at-bats with runners in scoring position. You know, we saw an RBI groundout in this game. This is how the Nats are scoring their runs these days now, RBI groundouts. Uh, Lane Thomas had one. He also had one of the Nats' uh, four hits in the game. He had a single. Uh, Michael Franco had a single. And that was it. There just was nothing else happening offensively for the Nats in this game. Nelson Cruz 0 for 3, Josh Bell 0 for 4 with a strikeout, and Juan Soto 0 for 4 with three strikeouts. And so the on-base streak comes to an end. 27 games, we had seen a lot of good from Soto here offensively lately, but boy, 0 for 4 and three strikeouts. Uh, We certainly haven't seen that often over the years, Soto striking out three times in a game like he did on Saturday night. He looked as uncomfortable at the plate as I've seen him in a long time, and he admitted that Bumgarner kind of had him uh, frazzled in some way, and he was swinging at pitches out of the zone. One of those strikeouts, he literally swung at three pitches out of the zone. How often do you see Juan Soto do that? Hardly ever. I think Bumgarner was getting him out with fastballs mostly as well. So a really strange night for him, and it's a tough way for the streak to end. But, you know, that's the funny thing about it all is that Bumgarner had – a great performance, his best in a long time, probably. This isn't who he usually is at this stage of his career. You would think he could just, you know, celebrate that and not have to worry about a you know, pretty meaningless home run at the end of the night. Yeah, Bumgarner, two runs in eight innings, nine strikeouts on Saturday night. He's having a decent season. He has an ERA of 371. And yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be interesting with him. You know, you're a Hall of Fame voter. He's not a regular season Hall of Famer necessarily, but the postseason has been so good that this does seem to be one of those classic cases in which the postseason really does propel you to Hall of Fame status. I mean, just thinking about him, looking at him, I think he probably is Hall of Fame worthy. And of course, so much of that is what he's done in October as opposed to April through September. Yeah, you know, I haven't really looked at the numbers yet and I'll wait till the career is over. But my inclination is to say, that will probably look at him in a similar way to Kurt Schilling as pitchers we're talking about here, although maybe there's some personality similarities as well, which we don't have to get into. Schilling was a very good regular season pitcher, but kind of inconsistent, but truly made his mark in the postseason, one of the greatest of all time. And Bumgarner absolutely is on that list. What he did for the Giants in the postseason is almost unparalleled. And, you know, I've always looked at it as that sort of is what can like lift you over the top. If you're a borderline case and you have the postseason resume like that, that can lift you over the top. On its own, that's probably not enough. But as long as you had a career that's at least worthy of consideration, then I think postseason performance can be the final uh, little tip of the scale that gets you in. Yeah, he's been a good regular season pitcher, but he's not been so great to where you say, well, this guy has to be in the Hall of Fame. The postseason accomplishments put him over. I mean, what he did in that 2014 postseason will never be forgotten. It might be the single greatest postseason any pitcher, heck, any player has ever had in baseball. You know the only team to beat him in that 2014 postseason? The Washington Nationals in Game 3 of the NLDS, the only game they won in that series, they beat Bumgarner. That is amazing when you think about what he did that postseason and what happened with the Nats in that postseason. And of course, the Nats in that postseason could barely hit and the Nats on Saturday night could barely hit. So the latest in as the Juan Soto turns is the following. And, you know, I wouldn't categorize this as like earth shattering news or a major development, but I think that it is notable. So MLB insider Ken Rosenthal of Fox Sports in The Athletic on Saturday afternoon on FS1's MLB pregame show said 
that uh, his understanding, quote, from multiple clubs is that the Nationals are asking for four to five top young players, a combination of prospects and major leaguers with low service time, end quote. Again, I don't think this surprises anyone. I think if you're going to deal Soto, you want to deal him for a bunch of young players. You want, you know, I would say at least three players to be like top 100 caliber prospects, if not more. You know, part of the issue is not every team has three or more top 100 prospects. I do want to raise this, though, because I've seen and heard a lot of this of, well, if you trade Juan Soto, you're never going to get equal value for him. Yeah, no kidding. I don't think anyone who is in favor of the Nats trading Soto or is open to the Nats trading Soto is saying, well, if you trade them and you get back five guys, maybe one of the five turns into Soto. Nobody's banking on that. The idea is if you trade Soto and get back five guys and say three of the five turn into good players, if not great players, then those guys in totality can equal or even surpass Soto. Like if you look at things through the prism of war, if Soto is say a six war player each season and you get back three guys who end up each becoming three war guys, then it's nine versus six. And you say, okay, well, you have exceeded the value of Soto, albeit via three players and three players who probably, if you combine their salaries, won't be making what Soto is going to be making moving forward. That's the idea. I don't think anyone is saying, well, you never know. You might find another Juan Soto. Like, I think people understand this truly is a generational talent who the Nats may be trading away. Yeah. And I get what you're saying. And you're right. And anybody who thinks they are going to come away with, you know, a future Hall of Famer in that trade, you're dreaming. I mean, maybe it happens, but you're not going to know that you're getting that for certain. But I do think it speaks to, and, and we've tried to say this from the outset here, that there is a difference between the Nationals listening to offers for Soto and the Nationals actually making a trade with Soto right now. It's a complicated thing. And if you're Mike Rizzo, rightfully so, you are asking for the moon. And if teams aren't going to meet that price, I don't think this is a situation where come, what is it, 6 p.m. on August 2nd, he's going to say, okay, what's the best offer on the table? Okay, we'll take it. It's not that. It's going to have to be something that he clearly says is worth it, something that he can take to ownership, that he can take to the fan base and say, yes, this was a good deal for us to make. This is a deal that we had to make. They don't have to do this. They can do it if they think it makes sense, but they don't have to do it. And I think that goes along with what Ken Rosenthal's report was there. And I think that's the right approach to take. You listen, you find out how much interest there is, you find out what teams are willing to give up. And then it's up to you to decide at the end of the day, is that enough to make this monumental move? Yeah. In sports, as is the case often in life, it's never great or it's usually not great when you have to do something. It's always better when I can do this, but I don't have to do this, right? It gives you a position of leverage, a position of strength, as opposed to, oh, good golly, if we don't trade them now, then what are we going to do? The Nats don't have to trade them right now, which is, if, if there is something good about this, it is that. There is a position of strength, you could argue, that the Nats are coming from in these trade negotiations. Unlike George Costanza, Mike Rizzo has hand in this relationship. He does. He doesn't have Brad hand, not anymore, but Rizzo does have hand. That is true. You can't break up with me. I've got hand. You know, another thing that I came across today, and this is actually from a few days ago, but again, there's been so much out there that like it's easy to lose track of things. So we talked about on the last installment of the podcast, well, the ownership situation and geez, 
What if the Nats just wait? If, in fact, the sale of the team is completed by November, let the new ownership figure out the Soto situation. You don't have to trade Soto this season right now. John Heyman of the New York Post had this in a report a few days ago. He said that, quote, a few prime reasons remain to think it'll be difficult to deal Soto. And one is that the Nats' current owners are said to have heard from some prospective owners that they'd prefer to buy the team with Soto, the team's greatest asset still on it. One unnamed hopeful owner said exactly that, that he wants to try to keep Soto and barring that, at least trade him for what he wants, end quote. I think that's notable. I wonder if the learners are hearing from multiple prospective owners of, hey, don't trade Juan Soto. We want to deal with the Soto situation ourselves. I think that could be an impactful wild card in all of this that leads to the Nats not trading Soto by August 2nd. Yeah, as I've been saying all along, this is not necessarily the learner's decision to make, as strange as that sounds. They would be making a decision for the next guy. Well, if you believe that the next guy is going to be around here pretty soon and in charge pretty soon, just push that along and let them deal with it later. And so unless it's something that is so clearly the right move to make, and you can sell that to everyone as the right move to make, and it doesn't hurt the sale of the team, which I think, like we said, I've got to believe that Juan Soto on the team makes the Nationals more valuable than Juan Soto not being on the team, then why would you rid yourself of that asset right before you're about to sell the team? So yeah, I agree. These are all the reasons why making a deal right now is going to be challenging. Doesn't mean it can't happen, the cards are played right, if everything comes together, I still believe it could happen. But there's a lot of obstacles in the way for it to happen in the next 10 days. And a lot of reasons for everyone involved to take a step back and say, hang on, we don't have to do this yet. Let's wait it out because there are answers to other questions that we can resolve first that may help shape this decision for down the road. Do you expect Mike Rizzo to speak to you guys before the trade deadline? Or do you think, especially because of the Soto situation, Mike is not going to talk to reporters until after that trade deadline? I hope he does. He often has. Last year, he spoke to us maybe about 10 days beforehand. That was the famous, uh, well, you know, we're not sure if we're buyers or sellers yet. The next week's going to let us know. And then the week let them know that they were going to be sellers. Now, the unusual thing here, he's not on the trip with them. He always comes to Arizona. He used to work here. He has a home here. He's not on this trip, not going to be in L.A. I'm sure he has a lot going on right now. They just did the draft, signed all their top picks. Now he's got to start working the phone, so I get why he wouldn't be here. By the time we get home next Friday against the Cardinals, you're talking about like four days left until the deadline. My hope would be that he uh, makes himself available to all of us on one of those days for a pre-trade deadline discussion because there's a lot of interesting things to hear before the fact. Obviously, there's going to be a lot to ask after the fact, but I think there's a lot of stuff to ask before the fact that gives you a sense of where he's really coming from on this. Yeah, no doubt. Nats remain the talk of the baseball world. That continues. That really is not slowed down. In terms of the Nats pitching on Saturday night, this was an Anibal Sanchez game. Uh, Sanchez, three runs in five innings, uh, gave up six hits, a homer, a double, and four singles, two walks, did have four strikeouts. He threw 93 pitches over his five innings. You know, I think what you say about Sanchez is 
he did put the Nats in a position to win the game. If they hit at least a little bit, okay, I mean, you can function with three runs in five innings. It's certainly not great. And, you know, you look at Sanchez, two starts now, seven runs in 10 innings. But, you know, you also look at Sanchez and no one goes into his starts with high expectations. So if he puts you in position to potentially win the game, okay, I think that's kind of what you're asking for from the guy. And uh, to me, he more or less did that on Saturday night. Yeah, he was fine. The first inning was long, 33 pitches, but he got out of it with one run, gave up a homer later on. He says, you know, he wants to go deeper in games. That's his biggest thing. He doesn't want to be a five and dive guy. He wants to be able to at least give him six uh, and feels like maybe he'll be able to start doing that. But the reason they lost this game wasn't Annabelle Sanchez is because the offense does nothing. And then what was still a competitive game, whether you believe they were going to come back or not, a competitive game turned into a rout because Andres Machado gave up four runs in the sixth inning, couldn't even complete the inning. That was really the bigger issue from a pitching standpoint. Yeah, God bless Anibal for wanting to pitch deeper into games. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that people are counting on that. But yeah, Machado in the bottom of the sixth, what a mess. Gets charged with four runs, records just two outs, gives up a double, three singles, a walk, and a wild pitch. Also, the Diamondbacks in the inning went two for two on stolen bases. Like, nothing went well for Machado in this inning. He threw 24 pitches, nearly as many balls as strikes. 13 strikes versus 11 balls. Now, the Nats bullpen, the rest of the game was really good. Erasmo Ramirez won in a third perfect inning. Steve Ciszek, perfect bottom of the eighth with two strikeouts. But boy, this actually was a semi-competitive game, although the Nats weren't hitting at all. And then Machado came in, and this became another route. Yeah, and this is the problem, is that in order for them to win a game right now, think of all the things they have to do well. Okay, They need to get a decent starting pitching performance. They kind of got that tonight. Could have been better. They need to produce at the plate. Well, they haven't done that at all. And on top of all that, they need good relief work. And all it takes is one, as we've pointed out, to have a bad inning. And and there you go. And this is why every single night they find themselves trying to come from behind. And it's even worse when you're down six runs as they were, as opposed to two runs. And so nothing's going right for this team right now. Absolutely nothing is going right. It's tough. It's tough. I did like your tweet from uh, Saturday afternoon. Madison Bumgarner started Game 2 of the 2012 World Series for the Giants. Anibal Sanchez started Game 3 for the Tigers. Tonight, with the stakes slightly lower, (laughs) they face each other for the Diamondbacks and Nationals. What a difference a decade makes, huh? Yeah, I mean, credit to them both that they're still pitching in the big leagues 10 years later. I would not have guessed this until I looked it up. You know how old Bumgarner is? 37? 32. Wow. That's how young he was when he was in his prime. You forget how young he was early on. He's only 32. He's had a career long enough and certainly acts a lot older than he is. And I don't mean that in a good way. Yeah, that's something. He made his major league debut in his age 19 season. So, yeah, he's only 32 and he acts like he's like 62 with the way he (laughs) talked about Victor Robles. So go figure. It's funny, man. Age I know it's cliche. Age really is a number because you have people who are numerically young and act like 20 years older. And then you have people who are actually 20 years older and act like they're numerically young. So such is the way uh, that life goes. Well, you tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast Nats chat podcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to become a sponsor of the Nats chat podcast. Hit us up again. The email address is Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. That's natschatpodcast.square.site. 
www.nats.square.site. Uh, we continue to get all kinds of great photos of people wearing their Nats Chat podcast t-shirts at games, especially road games. Shout out to Lisa Masters sent us a good-looking photo of uh, her and a friend or significant other at Chase Field wearing Nats Chat podcast t-shirts. We consistently invade enemy territory with listeners wearing the t-shirts, Mark. I think that's awesome. Can we get Tim on the case? And sorry, Tim, if it's too late for you to do this, but we need a, a, a list. Like, we need to check off how many ballparks have we seen evidence of the Nats Chat t-shirt in because we're getting up there. I mean, we're into double digits, I think, right? Yeah, I mean, and and at some random parks, too. Like, you wouldn't necessarily think Chase Field, like, you know, but yeah, Chase Field, people there. Heck, we got representation in Korea, all right, in the, in the, in the, the DMZ, okay? So you never know where the Nats Chat podcast t-shirt uh, is going to show up. Nats Chat is on the radio on Sunday mornings, Sunday mornings at 9 on 1061 ESPN in Richmond. You can listen online at ESPNRichmond.com and Sunday mornings at 9 on Sports Radio 96.5 FM at 8.50 a.m. in the Hampton Roads area. You can listen online at SportsRadio965FM.com. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat our courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And we continue now with a look back at what we thought was maybe the worst month in Nationals history, and maybe it'll prove to be. But uh, this month is certainly giving uh, this uh, other month a run for the month's money. Uh, July 2021, the month that changed everything for the Nats. Today, we're going to look back at a 3-1 10-inning loss to the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park on Wednesday night, July 21st, 2021. This loss ignited a five-game losing streak for the Nats, and the five-game losing streak really is what changed everything because the five-game losing streak included a three-game sweep at the lowly Orioles that convinced just about everyone that the time had come for Mike Rizzo to blow the team up. So we give you the look, look back right now, and we thank you for listening to the Nats Chat Podcast. <laughs> set in the pitch swing a line drive oh it's caught caught by the lunging first baseman Aguilar to end the ball game what a play by Jesus Aguilar you'd think he's a big lumbering guy at 277 pounds but very agile we've seen him make some outstanding plays before and he made one there to rob Alcides Escobar of a base hit that would have scored a run and got the Nationals to within a run and kept their hopes alive Again, in a game that goes to extras, very good in the ninth, but then not so good in the 10th. So this is the fifth time now this year that he has pitched the ninth and then come back to pitch the 10th. And all five times he's been scored upon in the 10th inning, all five. Now, sometimes that's the inherited runner, so he's not charged. Officially, it's an unearned run when the inherited runner scores. So it's not entirely his fault. But like you said, this was not one of those. I was all ready to really just scream and complain about the extra inning rule when Sandy Leone bunted the inherited runner over to third. And I'm thinking, here we go. Sack bunt, sack fly. They're going to lose the game. And the pitcher did absolutely nothing wrong. Well, no, that's not what happened there. He did earn the loss in this case. And the walk was the key to John Birdie, not a really tough hitter. Now, as Brad Hand is explaining it afterwards, with a runner on third in that spot, he's going for a strikeout because he knows contact and the runner's going to score. And so maybe he is nibbling around the zone a little bit, and he ends up in a full count and ends up walking him. And there were some close pitches there. Birdie didn't bite on him, and he ends up walking them. And so that is a case where 
if not for the automatic runner, he doesn't have to approach that hitter the same way. When there's a runner on third and it's the winning run or go-ahead run in extra innings and there's less than two outs, you have to try for the strikeout, and he couldn't get that there. Now, the double was a first pitch to Jorge Alfaro, and that was ripped down the left field line. And then you have a sack fly and a fly out. So, I mean, it wasn't awful, but this is now, like I said, five times where we've seen he has not gotten the job done pitching multiple innings like that. Now, he's had other games where Davey brought him in at some point in the eighth and then back for the ninth. And those, for the most part, have worked. But it's the ninth and tenth that have not. And here's Davey's dilemma there. The alternative is Austin Voth, who was warming in the bullpen at that point. We saw Voth the night before. He gave up the three quick runs and destroyed Paolo Espino's start. And you're now going to ask him with an automatic runner in scoring position to try to hold them down. If Voth gives up the game, we're complaining about that. So it's kind of a no-win situation. When you've already used up your two other best relievers, I don't know what the alternative is. But I just will say, I think we've seen a pattern here to know that Brad Hand, for multiple innings, more often than not, especially in that scenario in the 10th, he's not getting the job done. And you may need to find somebody else to do it when it comes to that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's that big of an ask to ask your top reliever to get two innings. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com. 